Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains, the curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Robert Diani teaches humanities at NYU. His previous books include The Craft of College Teaching and Critical Reading Across the Curriculum. His new book is You Are What You Read, A Practical Guide to Reading Well, our topic today. Welcome, Robert. Thank you, Mark, for having me. All right. Well, the question, why do we need a practical guide for reading at the present time? I think we always need practical guides for lots of things. And I think one of the most, one of the greatest pleasures in life and one of the most important things we can do for ourselves uh, to live a life more rewardingly, more intellectually rewardingly, and more emotionally rewardingly is to read with skill, with comprehension, um, with enjoyment, uh, read socially, uh, read uh, individually. Um, it, it's, a, it's a great, great skill to possess. And as you know, uh, and as many have said, uh, reading takes us everywhere, uh, imaginatively. And we live uh, many lives uh, through books. So um, I've always had uh, great pleasures in reading all kinds of things. Uh, when I was a teenager, I read, I read a lot of book, books about sports. Uh, I loved reading about baseball and, and about football. Uh, and in school, you know, I read what I had to read, you know. Uh, but I didn't really get very serious about it until I hit college when um, I roomed with a few guys who were serious readers. And they talked about Dickens and Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and, you know, Flaubert. And I, of course, had heard all those names, but I hadn't read their books. And I was embarrassed. Uh, mm -hmm. I was humbled. And I started reading. And uh, I haven't stopped. Uh so we, we had a contest in our dorm. Uh, Robert, you, 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 you yeah. didn't say, you, you guys you guys are a bunch of eggheads. I'm out of here. <laughs> eggheads, why? Reading, <laughs> reading, is a form, reading is a form of living. You it, learn exactly. a lot. You yeah, learn a lot yeah. about people. I learned more, more psychology from reading, you know, uh, not just Dickens, but George Eliot, uh, Henry James, uh, than, than, than reading Freud and Jung and all the, you know, uh, the great psychologists. Uh, and of course, at their best, they tell stories anyway. Um, that, that, that's another thing. You know, we, we, we read because we love stories. We're great storytellers. Uh, and although that's not all there is, uh, as we well know. So uh, I've, I've lost track of the, of the original question. What was it? Well, uh, why a practical guide for reading at the present uh, time? Okay, well, so let, let me get to... Uh, 
how to read. You know, I guess when I was in high school, maybe in college, I read uh, How to Read a Book by Mortimer J. Adler. Mm -hmm. How to read a book, how to mark a book, famous, a famous book. And uh, Adler would say, you can read maybe a book a month, seriously. You know, mark it up, read it, reflect on it. And, and I think that's a good practice. So in addition to reading a lot, you also want to read uh, deeply into a smaller number of books and, of course, revisit them. Um, and and I, I learned that. I learned how to do that, too. Um, what, what happens, I guess, is when, when you learn to read well, patiently, deliberatively, uh, uh, retroactively, uh, proleptically, you're reading forward, you're reading backward, you're making predictions, you're making connections, you're making inferences, you're discovering, oh, that, that inference isn't, isn't right, uh, I have to make a readjustment. So you're thinking, you're engaged with a, with a, with a wonderful process of yeah. of prediction and all. And so... So, so I think that um, not everybody knows how to do that. Some people need some guidance. Some people need to be shown. Give me some advice. Uh, and that's what this book, this, this book is about. And I try not to be heavy-handed about it. I, I try to say, come along with me as I look into, you know, um, a, a paragraph-length essay by a Japanese monk of the 17th century. Or come along with me when I read yeah. E.B. White's paragraph about the moon longing come along with me when i read a couple of poems by william carlos williams well, well it, it robert it, it wouldn't work very well if you wrote a book advocating reading and your book was a dull read <laughs> right? and it's uh, not well, it's not it's a very it's a very lively read with great examples yes i try not to take too long with anything you know these are quick demonstrations, invitations. I, I really think uh, I try to make the book an invitation to uh, consider some ways of approaching, uh, approaching books, approaching texts, approaching uh, excerpts from books, uh, call those texts, approaching books, call them works. Um, call, the poem is a work, but it can also be excerpted and examined as a text. And so, again, try not to be heavy-handed about it. Try to make some observations and ask some questions and invite the reader to come along for the journey. And, uh, you know, somebody said to me as I was drafting this book and, uh, you know, having it reviewed by uh, other colleagues, you know, for the publishing house, they said, you know, this, this isn't an argument. And I said, well, um, there are arguments within the book. I said, but the book on the whole is an invitation uh, to explore um, the processes that I'm suggesting. And so any proof about its success is in the uh, actual uh, coming along on the journey. You read the first chapter and you say, hey, you know, I'm thinking better about reading. I'm thinking better about these texts. Uh, uh, Diani has helped me to just kind of take my time, slow down a little bit, notice a few things, ask some questions. That whole first chapter is about asking questions, uh, not rushing to say, what's the meaning? What's the point? What's the key thing? You know, uh, sometimes we need to read for that, but mostly that's not pleasurable reading. That, that's not deep reading. That's not enjoyable reading. That, that's not reading that's going to stay with you. Um, so, so I try to say, hey, here are some questions to ask, you know, and let's ask these questions. Uh, there are questions that invite us to make observations, to see connections, to make inferences, uh, to reread, to read aloud. Uh, and so that's what that first chapter is. Uh, and and, and if, if it works, um, you become a better reader just from learning how to ask those questions. And the real proof 
course, is can you can you now take it to take another text, you know, right. something else that you're and use those questions. Do they help you to the extent that they do? Um, the argument for the book stands. Second chapter is about um, what do we mean when we search for truth? How can texts or works? What kind of truths do they tell? What kind of truths do they embody? Do they embrace? Do they reveal? Um, or, or do they partly conceal? So I'm trying to ask those questions, a whole other set of questions about ways uh, to enter the world of the book, the world of the author's mind, uh, the you, world you, that the author creates. You want readers, I, I mean, you, yes, you do say, now, you know, maybe hold off a little bit by trying to say what the work means, but there is a, a form of delving into the, the truth of the literature, but that requires something that you highlight. You've got to be responsive. You've got to be a responsive yeah. reader. What what would characterize, let's say, a responsive reader of, of one of the works that you pick? If you if you wanted to select one of the illustrations you have, tell me how, how one would respond to that. Well, you know, when I say a, a responsive reader, I mean, the, the work engages you intellectually and emotionally, okay? It, it hits, um, what, what shall we say, a responsive chord. So uh, when, I, when I think about reading uh, responsively, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about the personal connection you have uh, with the work. Um, and so, for example, let's just take, uh, take, take the little passage about E.B. White and say, well, he's writing about the moon landing. Well, he is writing about the moon landing, but he's celebrating that moon landing. But he's also questioning uh, the values that we celebrate as Americans uh, when we celebrate the moon landing. And he challenges us, invites us, uh, provokes us to think more universally. The moon landing isn't just about America, although it's a great American space triumph. It's a book about you know, humanity. It's about, it's about human accomplishment. And he gets us thinking about how we all live under the same moon <laughs> hmm. uh, and, and how the tides that the moon uh, you know, affects uh, are tides not just in America, but around the world. And he starts inviting us to think more universally. So, um, I mean, I, I, I like the fact that he pushes us outside uh, in that particular work, a, a little essay of a dozen senses, outside the conventional, the knee jerk. Uh, and, and, you know, let, let's admit, you know, the patriotic uh, celebration of that uh, great competitive uh, journey that we took mm -hmm. after Sputnik profited us, you know, a dozen years earlier. Uh, so so um, I don't know. It, that's the, res the responsive personal part. But the, the, the other hinge of that is responsibility. We need to be responsive. And I say personally connected and reflective about these works. But we also need to be responsible in the sense that we're reading carefully. We're, we're not misreading. We're, we're not uh, simply taking the author's work and uh, grinding it into some particular theory, uh, through some particular theory or some ideology. Yeah. Um, you know, th those, it seems to me, are, are ways to limit uh, rather than uh, expand um, the value of the reading that we do. So it's responsibility as well as uh, you know, what I might call more subjective uh, personal responsiveness to the work. And that responsibility comes through, you know, uh, practice and learning, learning how to be careful, how to be attentive to language, how to be respectful of an author's intentions as revealed in his or her selection of detail, examples, 
arguments, evidence, and all the things that we have to help our first-year students in the university learn how to do. What is so good about Antony's speech over the corpse of Caesar? <laughs> What's so good about it? Well, uh, what are your examples? About first, yeah, yeah, I know. Maybe I need to kind of look at it <laughs> for a minute and see, see where we are. But I think the first thing I have to say about it is that it's a response to something that went before. It's not, it doesn't come out in, in a vacuum. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes in response to Brutus's speech. And so the first thing we say is, uh, okay, uh, what is Anthony doing vis-a-vis what Brutus just said? Uh, and that is part of its great power. And if we neglect that, we ignore that, we're missing, I think, the central element of uh, Shakespeare's here, not just rhetoric, his dramaturgy as well as his rhetoric. He's using that speech uh, in, a, in a particular dramatic moment. So, you know, that, that question that you asked raises questions about genre. We're reading a play. And even though we've extracted a great piece of rhetoric, a brilliant speech, a memorable speech from it, uh, it exists as part of a whole, and it exists in a particular moment in a literary work. And so, you know, that, that's another thing I, I think we always have to remember. So I talk a lot about um, relationships. You know, what's the relationship of that speech to the one before? Uh, what's the relationship of the action, uh, you know, that it generates to, uh, you know, what happened before and what's going to happen later? Uh, what's the relation of the paragraph to the previous paragraph and the success of succeeding paragraph. If I teach my students how to read relationally, you know, sentence to sentence, paragraph to paragraph, uh, uh, idea to example, uh, and further example, and what does the next paragraph or the next page add in terms of value? It's not just doing the same darn thing. If it's doing the same darn thing in the same way, it's not advancing, it's not developing, it's simply repeating itself. Right. Um, uh, there is a great, great writer who doesn't repeat himself. Uh, these passages, these speeches um, develop and propel the plot and develop the psychology, uh, reveal the psychology of the characters. What, what's great about it, of course, is how Anthony uses language, repetition in particular, right? Brutus is an honorable man. Uh, yes, and yes, of course, and oh, yes, Brutus is an honorable <laughs> man. And they, you know, so Shakespeare, of course, as you know, studied uh, rhetoric uh, by translating and writing and rewriting and revising and adapting all kinds of exercises. Uh, um, there's a wonderful book by uh, Scott Newstock that's also part of this series of which uh, my two books are, The Craft of College Teaching and this new book I'm reading. It's called uh, How to Think Like Shakespeare. And he talks about a Renaissance education and what a Renaissance education was and what Shakespeare learned how to do via that Renaissance education. Newstock is arguing that we need to bring back a lot of the strategies, the teaching strategies of the Renaissance education. Of course, without the uh, physical punishment you know, of the students. <laughs> but, but, but the ideas and the practices you know, uh, of imitation and, and, you know, and, and uh, learn, learning how to take uh, advantage and use productively uh, various rhetorical strategies and techniques. Yeah. So those are things that are great about the speech, the psychology of it, the rhetoric of it, um, uh, you know, the sheer memorability of it, the power of it. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning. 
all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You, you mentioned earlier uh, about literature as, as psychology, and I, you know, a friend of mine told me a while back, he said, you know, the novel is great psychology. And it teaches psychology in a way different from psychology teaches psychology. You take concrete characters in concrete situations, and you you imagine you get you got to get inside their heads. You got to figure out motive, and that includes even getting inside the head of someone you don't like. And that that in itself is it's a valuable learning experience to have to inhabit the mind, the will the feelings of someone very different from you and perhaps of someone dislike, dislikable. Do you yeah. find that yeah. uh, a worthy exercise? Absolutely, absolutely. Henry James, right? I mean, portrait of a lady. Gilbert Osmond. <laughs> He's a hateful character. Yeah. So get inside those minds of those characters. Yes, indeed. Understand them. Appreciate what they're doing. Uh, and also, uh, you know, some. Uh, a number of people have said, critics over the years, you know, but we learned from uh, reading critics how not to make those mistakes, you know, uh, we, we, we learn from their mistakes, you know, uh, uh, and, and, can, and therefore can be more careful in our own lives. So, um, you know, that for me has been a great uh, power of, of, of reading fiction. Well, I've, I've often, I, I, I believe that when we see young people today be so reactive to other people, you know, you're this, you've done that bad thing, that they really rely on a very superficial conception of motive. They don't understand mixed motives, complex feelings from people who may be very unlike them, and that one problem is they haven't read enough novels. What do you think of that? <laughs> I think that's I think that's a powerful idea. Um, and, and no, seriously, and 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 they don't even have to be big, you know, giant, powerful, uh, complex novels like no. you know, or no. Portrait of a Lady. It could be it could be something short and, and simple. You know, my wife is a teacher also, and she she does you know, teen, teen literature, and uh, with them and these high school kids. And wow, uh, it's really all about what you just said. It's about trying to understand somebody who has a different point of view, they have a different religion, different way of uh, um, conceiving of uh, what, what's valuable, what's important in life, different way of thinking about things. I think that, you know, one of the things that novel reading makes us patient. We, we, we have to be patient. Uh, we have to listen. We have to listen to what these characters are saying. A lot of times, in, as you just point out, uh, young people get into arguments about each other and start, like, uh, you know, making uh, uh, assertions about what someone is based on what, on one th comment they said. You know, I try to teach my students uh, in, in all the courses to, to listen, to listen to each other. Slow down. Uh, I said, slow down when you read, slow down when you listen. Try to understand the, the logic, uh, the point of view. Uh, even if you don't disagree, you don't agree with it, that, that's okay. But understand that it has some kind of rationale 
Yeah. And fiction, uh, I think, helps us helps us uh, helps us do that. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, yeah. Uh, Orson Welles liked to quote a statement by the French filmmaker Jean Renoir, who said, "Yeah, uh, the most awful thing about the world is that everyone has his reasons." Actually, in mm. the French, it's not the word awful; it's it's effrayable, yeah. the most you know frightful. Wow. terrifying thing in the world everyone has his reasons and and even villains and and wells actually yeah. actually thought that you know the the greater the villain the, the more important it is to to give him reasons even if, and that doesn't mean you excuse or justify it's about a labor of understanding uh i mean people yeah. can have very bad reasons but it's good to figure out the reasons that, no, I think the key word that you just said there, you underscored it in the way you said is understanding, understanding. You know, Robert Scholes in, in his books and conversations I had with him over the years, we talked about, you know, uh, literary theories and all this sort of thing. And he said, you don't have to believe in, you know, you know Dante's worldview or Hardy's fatalism. He said, uh, you, you don't have to believe, but you do have to understand. If you don't understand, you know, you, you're yeah. missing the boat, you know. You really, we don't really need to pay attention to what you have to say unless you understand. That doesn't mean you have to believe. And I think that's true. And literary characters, uh, look at look at Shakespeare. I mean, how many wonderful characters Shakespeare created uh, in El Fellow alone? You know, we have uh, Rodrigo the Dupe and, and we have uh, brilliant Iago. I mean, you know, you don't like Iago, but, but, but you respect uh, his brilliance and his ability to manipulate people. So, uh, and so that's drama, you know, but we're talking about fiction too. Yeah. Well, you, you like, you, you say that you, you like parables. What is the appeal of parables? Do young people like parables? I think they do. Yeah. When, when I introduce parables to students, they, they, they like them a lot. Uh, one of the things they, they, there are two reactions. Sometimes I, they, they don't get it. Like, oh, I'm, I'm lost. You know, I, I don't understand this. Other times, you know, they get it and they're done. And I think both uh, responses need a calibration. Uh, if you don't get it, okay, let's let's go over. Let's look at the details and let's start thinking about the details and their relationship. And now the students slow down and start to say, oh, well, maybe it could mean this or it could imply this. I say, yes. And, and what else could it imply? What else might we make this? I, I give them a wonderful parable, uh, a little Zen parable that I picked up years ago, and I've been using it for more than 30 years. It's, it's about um, silence, you know. And uh, some, a few little uh, young students, pupils, uh, decide they're going to observe seven days of silence. And on the first day, um, something happens. You know, the, the oil lamps go out, and one of the stu uh, students says, you know, uh, light those lamps. And the second student says, you, you know, you're not, don't you know we're not supposed to talk? Okay, so two of them have talked instantaneously. <laughs> And the third one says, you two are stupid. Why did you talk? <laughs> and the first, fourth one says, I'm the only one who hasn't talked. <laughs> so uh, I slow them down and say, okay, let, let, let's go back. Why did each of these, let, let's kind of, as we were talking a moment ago, get inside their heads. What's the motive for that yeah. first one, the yeah. second one, the third one, the fourth one? And what are we learning from this? What are we learning about silence? What are we learning about trying to do things together? You know, and so on. And I want them to 
have different interpretations. So I say to them, okay, parables don't have, they don't come with ready-made morals the way fables do. Now, however, write down a moral, a lesson that this parable teaches. Mm-hmm. So they all do that. And, they, and, and so they all do it. And it, it's a powerful thing because it's a, a microcosm of what we do when we read, you know, <laughs> Moby Dick or Bleak House, you know. We are, we are making meaning. We are figuring out uh, the significance, the implications of the text, of the work. Um, but the, the thing, even with a parable, I say, let's not settle for one meaning. What else could it mean? And I don't mean only let's ask the 20 students in the room because we'll have a half a dozen different ways of looking at it. Uh, but you individually, can you come up with a second? Look at it again. Come at it from another angle. Trying to teach them that lesson, that yeah. interpretation are variable. And then why did you come up with that second? What what did you emphasize or what did you downplay? Differentiate it, differentiate it from your first reading and so on and so on. So, I mean, I, it, the parable is nice because it's a brief, you get into it, you can go, you can go forward with it. Yeah. And then you can show them another parable. Ask them, I have students who come from many different tra- religious traditions, cultural traditions. And so they know parables and stories from their traditions are different from, say, you know, the, the Western Christian uh, tradition. Or the, I, and that's why I use Zen, Zen parables with students. Um, but now I have lots of Chinese <laughs> or Asian students. I, I have to use the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son. They don't know that. They don't know those. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, anyway, that's yeah. why I like parables a lot. So, so uh, biographical question for, for a moment. Robert, were there any particular books that really grabbed you in adolescence? In adolescence, you know, <laughs> almost embarrassed to say. I used to like James Fenimore Cooper's novels. <laughs> they had propuls- a propulsive narratives, you know. I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed reading them. I enjoyed also the challenge of trying to read Dante and Virgil, you know, when I was in high school. And uh, so, so it was a different kind of uh, pleasure I took in them. Uh, you know, the pleasure of accomplishing, you know, something difficult. You know, re- reading a, reading an epic, you know, and 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 doing some, uh, you know, uh, ancillary reading to help you figure out what's going on. Um, but but for sheer pleasure, I I tell you, I, those sports books, Catcher from Double A, you know, End Zone, uh, <laughs> sports books. And then of course I graduated. You know, once I got to college. Uh, I started to love reading fiction, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. It was Hardy, Hemingway, it was Henry James, you know. And, yeah. And, and yeah. I, I love the Russians, the Russians too. In the summers, you know, that's when I read the big books, you know. Yeah. yeah. The 500, 600, yeah. 700, 800 words. I didn't have time to read those during the school year. But I always had months in the summer and Christmas vacation, Brothers Karamazov, uh, that sort of thing. So I was uh, I was enamored of fiction. Well, he, you know, why... Why do young people sometimes identify very powerfully with fictional characters? I mean, they're not real. They're just, they're just fictional. But, but you, you, you see the, the very deep uh, commitment that readers feel for specific characters. Why does that happen? Well, uh, we see people who are wrestling with some of the same challenges, the same problems that, that we wrestle with. We see p- people, you know, in fiction, I'm calling them people, literary characters, 
trying to figure things out for themselves. Who, who am I? What, what am I doing? Who, how, how, you know, uh, what is my relationship to these other characters who are coming in and out of my world, you know? Uh, so, you know, they have ambitions, they have hopes, they have dreams and frustrations. So I, I, I think we go to fiction to see how people um, deal with those things, you know, just, just the way we do in our, yeah. in our lives. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and you talk about identi- identifying, uh, I, I guess, you know, t- teenage, teenagehood, uh, adolescence, we remember, you know, we're very impressionable, right? And, and, and we do, we do see, uh, uh, we want to see people like ourselves in those books. Later on, we, we don't, we don't care as much. We, we want to see difference. We want to see the other <laughs> yeah. more than we want to see our, we yeah. want to see ourselves. You know, yeah. Robert Skull said somewhere, you know, one of his books that if you, if you if you always see the same thing, if, if you, if you're always seeing yourself, uh, you know, you're never going to, you're never going to learn. You're never going to grow. You're never going to develop. Fiction gives you the opportunities to live many other lives, to imagine, to understand many other imagine, imagined ways of being in the world. Uh, and, and that's, it's, that's, it's great power. I mean, what's it like to be a woman? What, you know, if you're a man, you know, what, 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 what's it like to be blind or, or deaf or, you know, or a mad, or, or crazy, or a madman. What's it like to be Ahab? <laughs> right, right. Now, when I started teaching, uh, you know, as a grad student at UCLA in the mid '80s, and then at Emory through the '90s, I got a lot of bookworms in my English department classes. They weren't necessarily uh, ambitious. They didn't often. They didn't care that much about grades, but they they just read things a lot. I might mention something in class that wasn't on the syllabus. That student would go read it. Uh, but by 05, certainly by 2010, those characters were actually pretty rare. Did you see yeah. the same? Have you seen the same thing at yeah. NYU over the years? Yeah, I have. I mean, I've been at NYU 20 years now. And before that, I was at Pace for 20 years. Uh, yeah, I've seen, I've seen a, a diminished uh, concern for, for reading. And, uh, you know, when I tell students, I read two books, uh, um, uh, two books a week uh, for a year. I read 100 books a year starting in freshman year. And I told you because I was embarrassed yeah. <laughs> to be talking with fellow readers. Uh, they, they can't believe it. So I said, well, can you imagine yourself reading one book a week? Not necessarily a big book, a small book, something yeah. you're really curious about or interested in, and maybe something to do with a course that you have. Put that on your list. You think you think you might try to read a book a year. And some of these who are not big readers but understand the importance of it, uh, especially as we're taking the course and they're seeing how necessary it is. Uh, so they say, yeah, well, you know, that that's a challenge. A number of them decide they want to they want to take for themselves. So, I I, I think uh, you know for all the reasons we know about the internet and fragmentation, and of of, of attention and and all the rest, uh, students are having a harder time, uh, you know, becoming or per, not just uh, readers but proficient readers and deep readers, uh, real readers. And yet, interestingly enough. Books are being sold like crazy. Lots of there are lots of readers out there, and, yeah. and, and they're reading all kinds of all kinds of all kinds of books. You know, we look at the bestseller list. You see, you see everything going on there, from history and sociology, 
philosophy, you know, fiction. Fiction is always popular. But I, but I do see students need, they need some guidance. They need some help. And they need to see that they can do it. And so I'm hoping that this little book yeah. says, here are some ways, here are some ways to read nonfiction. Here are some ways to read fiction. Here are some questions. Um, here's a little bit of literary theory, not too much, just enough, I hope. My chapter on Wolfgang Eiser and, uh, you know, dialectics, para- readings, paradoxical pleasures. Um, can you can you can you find value in these? And once you do, then I think you want to read. Then you, then you want to pick up some of those books. Yeah, the book is <laughs> well. Uh, here, here it is. The book is "You Are What You Read: A Practical Guide to Reading Well." Robert Diani, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Mark. I appreciate the conversation. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.